Turn, if you would, please, to the book of John, the third chapter. We're going to be reading the end of the chapter. We've been going through the book of John for several weeks now. And in the book of John, we read about John the Baptist at the beginning. So John the Baptist, we should never confuse with the Apostle John, although it's easy sometimes to get confused when you're just reading about John. You've got to think about, okay, now which one is this? So we're reading the Gospel written by the Apostle John, and he starts out talking about Jesus and John the Baptist, who announced his coming ahead of time. John the Baptist had been preaching and baptizing, and then um, he proclaimed that Jesus Christ was the Christ, the Messiah. So he was the first one to announce it to the watching world. Jesus is the Christ, the one we've been waiting for. And there had been crowds of people coming to be baptized, crowds of people coming to hear what John the Baptist had to say, And then when Jesus began to publicly minister, he and his disciples were in another location and his disciples were baptizing. And John's disciples, John the Baptist's disciples, got jealous. They come to John the Baptist and they're like, hey, everybody's going to him now. And that's where we are. It's John's response to his disciples and we, we looked at it some last week. We're going to continue looking at that this morning. Um, last week we saw John's humility and his desire that Jesus would receive the glory and not himself. Because Jesus is the bridegroom and the savior of his people. So he uses this analogy of a wedding. And who does everybody want to be happy the day of the wedding? Well, yeah, you want everyone who attends to be happy. Yeah, you want the groomsmen and the bridesmaids to be happy. But really what you want is that the bride and the groom would be happy, right? And that's the analogy that he uses. And, and it's a beautiful uh, analogy because it extends so, so far because Jesus actually is the bridegroom, the husband of the church. And so it's not, it's not simply an analogy that John is using. He is explaining uh, a truth to his disciples. How important it is that Jesus is the one that receives the honor and the glory. And that John must decrease himself, he says. In other words, what John recognizes is that he is nothing apart from Jesus. If it wasn't for Jesus... John wouldn't even exist. So this week, we continue to look at John's answer to his disciples, and we find that he continues to do his best to cause Jesus to increase in the estimation of his disciples. So what he does is he begins to magnify Jesus personally right then and there before his disciples, not just say he is great, but to explain how Jesus is great and how in comparison he is nothing himself. Not just in terms of Jesus' greater position that he holds, but how much more important it is for them to listen to Jesus than to himself. 
And that's a contrast that makes all of us uncomfortable at the start. Because we're like, well, isn't he saying the same thing? Isn't his message the message of Jesus? Isn't it good that we listen to both of them? And of course, the answer is true. But what we see is that in comparison, what John is doing is he, he keeps bringing the comparison and he keeps shoving himself lower and lower and shoving Jesus higher and higher until there's, he's just on the bottom. There's nothing. And Jesus is given all of the glory. So please stand for the reading of God's word from John chapter 3, beginning in verse 27. We'll read through the end of the chapter. Verse 36, John 3, 27. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies. And no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. What I want to do is I want to jump right to the end of what we read and look at that last verse for a second, and then we'll go back earlier in the passage and, and work our way through it. But let's start with that last verse. Verse 36 has this phrase, But he who does not obey the Son will not see life. Now, if you pulled out an older Bible, a King James Version, for example, and you read it, what you would see is an interesting difference in wording there. He who does not obey the Son will not see life, is this version that I read to you. The King James Version says, He that believeth not the Son. Okay, so I noticed that difference there. You know, believing and obeying are two different things in our minds, right? Believing and obeying, and the distinction between believing and obeying is very important in understanding how we're saved, right? Are we saved by our good works, by our obedience? No, absolutely not. And yet you've got this odd discrepancy in translations there. So I got curious, right? I'm thinking, okay, well, you know, how is it that you have so, on such an important thing, obedience versus believing, which one is it? Is it if we don't believe Jesus, 
that we won't be saved, or is it if we don't obey Jesus, we won't be saved? Well, the meaning of the Greek word there it <laughs> is both. The meaning of the Greek word there is both obedience and belief. And that's why you have the two different words being translated. So I want to give you a little illustration to help you understand why believing and obedience come together into the same word. And then we'll go back and we'll work our way through the passage. My illustration is simple. Think of a child who has been sent by his father with a message for his brother. Okay, here's the message. So dad sends out into the backyard, little Johnny. <clears throat> and Johnny says, you need to stop chopping down Dad's favorite apple tree and come inside. He's going to take us to the amusement park. Okay, you got the message? Seems like a bizarre message, right? <laughs> well, in some sense, what I've done is I've, I've tried to make it as bizarre as the gospel message is. Do you understand how odd it is that, that, that the message that's given to us is one that says to repent of our sin and to receive eternal life in the name of Jesus Christ? Okay? The message that we should be expecting from God is, you're a goner. I told you not to do that. You did it anyway, end of story, right? But instead, what we get is this gospel message, this good news that there is salvation available through the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is what John is driving towards. But now this word, okay, this word, believe and obey. You've got to think about the child out in the yard at this point, okay? The child out in the yard cutting down dad's favorite apple tree. What does that child need to do? That child needs to believe the message and then obey it, right? What's the command? The command is stop chopping it down and come inside. And then what will he get? He'll get to go to the amusement park. But if he does not believe that the message is true, will he obey? No, of course not, right? And if he does not obey, has he believed? Of course not. Because what child in their right mind would believe the message and then not go inside? Do you understand? Okay, so it's sort of a silly analogy. It's a little, silly little way for us to think about this word. But that's what the word means. It's, um, <clears throat> the word is to refuse to be persuaded. The concept is simple. To be persuaded is to act on the information, right? 
But to not be persuaded is to not act on the information. And that's why both, in this, in this particular place, both believing and obedience are wrapped up together in the same word. Lack of obedience and lack of belief of the message are integrally connected. You, you can't pull them apart from each other. So that's the concept that we have in the verse. Not easy to translate, but really pretty easy to understand. If you believe the message, you'll act on it. That's the, so disbelieving is to disobey in this context. Okay, so with that in mind, let's leave the backyard for a bit and go back and look at the earlier parts of the passage. And then we're going to come back to the backyard. All right? John the Baptist is talking to his disciples, and he's talking about why it's good that people are turning to Jesus. Because his disciples are upset. John's disciples are upset that everyone's going over to Jesus now. Everyone's going to him to hear his preaching. Everyone's going to him to have his disciples baptize them. And here they've loved John. They've seen what he's done, and, and he's just becoming nothing. Like, all the crowds are just... This whole kingdom that he had built up. And yet it wasn't his kingdom and he hadn't built it up. His whole goal was to prepare the way of the Lord. As we saw in the, at the beginning of the book, right? So why is John trying to convince them of this? Well, because that's the, his whole purpose. is to convince everybody to believe on Jesus Christ and to be saved to prepare the way for the coming of that one, the promised one, that the Jews had been looking forward to for, for generations, for centuries. Because he is the Christ. It's because Jesus comes from above, verse 31, and is heavenly. And he says that in contrast to himself, being earthly. John's message is the same as Jesus' message, right? Jesus does not denigrate John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, John the Baptist baptizes Jesus. So there is no conflict between John and Jesus, and that's part of what John is saying. There's no conflict for everyone to turn completely away from me and to follow Jesus is exactly what I want. I don't need followers of me. What I desire is followers of Jesus. And the reason is because Jesus is from above, heavenly. I am just of the earth, he says. And yet John goes further. He, he calls his own message earthly and Jesus' message heavenly. Why is that? The reason is because Jesus is the message. Jesus himself is the good news. Prince of Peace, the one we celebrate at Christmas. 
So what was John the Baptist's message? John 1.29 says, what he says is, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He sees Jesus, he's in front of the crowds, and he says, Look! The Lamb of God, the one sacrificed so that our sins can be forgiven. That's one way of describing John's message. Matthew puts it a little bit differently. Matthew 3.2 says that his message was, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in verse 6, And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So what is all of this? How does this all come together? How does his message of believe, behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, and repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand? How do those come together? Well, they come together just like obedience and belief. They really can't be separated. You cannot have the Lamb of God sacrificed for your sins unless you admit that you are sinful, which is to confess your sins. Apart from confessing that you are sinful, there cannot be a sacrifice for your sins. And then Jesus is not your lamb. Do you understand? They can't be pulled apart from each other. And that's why that's, that's all of John's message. They go together perfectly. Jesus comes from above, from heaven. He is above all. And not only this, but verse 32, we see that he has seen and heard firsthand what he declares. John has received the message from God, right? But Jesus is God. The contrast is overwhelming between John and Jesus. They're nothing like each other. And so we see that if we believe what Jesus says, we are believing God. Verse 33. Read that again to you. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. So if you believe what Jesus said, and and John says, of course, nobody is. Nobody's believing what Jesus says. But if you were to believe what Jesus said, and this includes his disciples, by the way, right? John's disciples must not believe what John has been saying, must not believe what Jesus has been saying, or what? Or they wouldn't be coming complaining to John that everyone's following Jesus. But if you receive his testimony, verse 33, then you've set your seal to this. What your confidence, you're setting your confidence in is this one thing, that God is true. And yet so few are receiving it, what Jesus says. And this has always been the case. 
it's still true today. Very few are receiving what Jesus has said. We go back earlier in the chapter, we see John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. And this verse is given in the context of Jesus speaking to somebody who is a religious leader, a teacher in, the, in Israel, and Jesus is astounded and disgusted that this religious leader doesn't understand these things. Now, God had given the good news. We read about it in Genesis. God had given the good news for centuries, for generations. The Israelites had God's word. They had his law. They had all of the Old Testament prophets talking about what the Messiah was, who he was going to be, what he was going to accomplish. And yet, when it came right down to it, they were expecting somebody else. They were not expecting Jesus. They were not expecting somebody who would save them from their sins. They were expecting somebody who would save them from the Romans. Why does this matter? Well, because I want you to see that moving forward here to today, okay, we have a lot of talk about the gospel today. A lot of talk about gospel, and what gospel means is good news. And yet what I want you to realize is that still today, just like as, as shocking as it is that the Israelites didn't understand who the Messiah was and what he was supposed to do, all right, as shocking as it is that John the Baptist's disciples didn't get it when John's whole purpose was to prepare the way for the Lord, his whole message was one of turn to Jesus, and they're like, hey, people are going to Jesus. Yes, exactly, right? It's shocking, isn't it, that, that they could be that dense? And yet here we are today, and we think that somehow this has changed, and that everyone who says the word gospel understands it, right? Everyone who is the good news, and who talks about having the good news, must understand the good news exactly the right way, right? Wrong. We've got the same thing, and that's what John says. You know, they don't receive it. They have the testimony of Jesus, and yet they don't receive it. They don't just have my testimony. They have the testimony of the one who comes from above, the one who is an eyewitness to these things, the one who is God himself. And in context, it's absolutely impossible to avoid the fact that he's speaking of Jesus as God. Right? You go back to the beginning of the book of John, just two chapters earlier, and what do we see? The whole first half of the first chapter is about setting up Jesus as God, making it clear. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Right? from the very first verse. So it's absolutely clear what John the Apostle has placed the context for this passage, right? Jesus is God. 
He is from above. He is heavenly. He is God himself. And yet we have refused so much of the time, so many people have heard his testimony and they have not received his testimony. So now, what is it to receive his testimony? That's of utmost importance, isn't it? To receive the testimony of God, this one who is from above, is absolutely essential, isn't it? We read it. Verse 33, he who has received his testimony, Jesus' testimony, has set his seal to this, that God is true. Is God true? Yes, God is true. This is, it's almost like one of those logical tautologies, you know. Is, is truth true? Yes, truth is true. Is God God? Yes, God is God. Is God true? Yes. Do you understand? You, you can't separate. God isn't God if God isn't true. And yet, somehow we doubt it. Now you think, no, no, I know God is God. Why would you say I doubt it? I don't doubt it. I've always known God is God. Well, the reason that I say you doubt it is because this is exactly where Satan attacks us. You go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 3, and you see the temptation that Satan begins to introduce in the garden to Eve. And what does he say? essentially says God isn't true, God isn't loving, God isn't good, you can't trust him. You can't set your seal to this, that God is true. That's always what Satan is working to convince us of, that you can't actually set your seal to it. You cannot be 100% confident that God is telling the truth. When he says what? When he says, don't eat of the tree. When he says, obey me, and it will go well with you. When he says, repent and believe, and you will receive eternal life. All of these things, anything that God has said, Satan wants us to disbelieve it. And here's the interesting thing. If you believe it, you will obey him. Remember how we were talking about how the belief and the obedience, they go together in this verse, right? If you believe it, you will obey him, and therefore I know that you regularly doubt that God is true, because I know that you regularly sin. As soon as we see ourselves and we see that 
any kind of disobedience is a rejection of the fact that God is true. Then we begin to realize what faith is. Your faith, what John is trying to convince his disciples of, is what he's trying to convince us of is, if you put your faith in Jesus, it is not misplaced. If you put your faith in Jesus, there is no doubt as to the truth of his message. He is God. There's no doubt about it. It's not just a sure bet. It's much more than a sure bet. It's impossible for your faith to be misguided if your faith is in Jesus. And this is exactly where Satan attacks us. To believe the lies of Satan is to not believe the good news of Jesus. It's to refuse to obey and thus to not receive the promised blessing for those who believe. So to give in to temptations is to disbelieve God's promises. They go hand in hand. To disbelieve his promises is to turn immediately to disobedience. So let's go back to the backyard. The promise is not a roller coaster. The promise is eternal life. If you believe Jesus, you will obey him. Because to believe is to immediately obey. Because what you have is two choices the wrath of God remaining on you, or eternal life. Why would we not grasp hold of eternal life if we believed that those were the choices before us? To not obey is to not receive life, but to instead receive God's wrath. I want to I say that again, and I want you to let it sink deep into your heart. All right? To not obey, to disobey, is to not receive life, but instead to receive God's wrath. That's the promise. You think, well, that doesn't sound very reformed. And I say, okay, let's, let's look at verse, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. If your Reformed theology has set you up to the point where you can't say to somebody, 
if you disobey, you will be under God's wrath, then what you've done is you've turned aside from the plain words of Scripture to some goofy quote-unquote gospel. Okay? And that's not the good news that we have here. In John 3, John 3.16, you know, the, the verse for proclaiming God's life just comes a little bit before this. We can't be ashamed to call people to obedience. We can't be ashamed of seeking obedience ourselves. He who does not obey the Son will not see life. Yes, this is obviously wrapped up in belief, right? Because if you believe, then you will obey. Hey, Johnny, Dad says stop chopping down the apple tree and come inside. He's going to take you to the amusement park. But if you don't, he'll give you a spanking instead. If you don't, his wrath abides on you. This isn't in conflict with believing. This is the immediate cooperative response with belief. It's obedience. And so earlier in the chapter... When Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, he speaks of the Spirit bringing about new birth in us, right? And that's where we ran into the fact that we cannot believe apart from the Spirit working within us. But here what we see is we will obey if we believe. Declarations of the good news or of the gospel that don't include a call to obedience are inevitably a different message. Because it's a different kind of belief. If it's a belief that doesn't necessitate obedience, it's not the belief that John is speaking of here. And remember, belief is what the entire book of John is about. Over and over and over, all through the book, what you see is believe, 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 belief, 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 belief. Over and over and over, and it ends with the statement, these things have been written so that you may believe. And that believing you may have life in his name, in Jesus' name. Okay, so the whole idea is to teach us what we're supposed to believe, who we're supposed to believe in, and what belief looks like. And what we see is this word right here that is translated both believe and obey, depending on the translation you're looking at, right? If you don't do that, 
believe obey. If you don't believe obey, you don't have the belief that John is talking about. Now, maybe some of you have been waiting for me to qualify this a little bit, all right? I'm happy to qualify it right here. What John is not saying is obey and you'll receive eternal life. Okay? That's moralism, legalism, a whole bunch of isms that are bad isms. Okay? We cannot earn our salvation in the context of the chapter and of the whole book and of the entire Bible, of course, we see there's no way for us through our own actions to please God and to earn our way into his heaven. But there's no more qualification that's necessary than that. All right? Believe, obey. And, and if you're confused by that, I really, I think this, this little illustration of the backyard is, is simple enough for us to understand because we've all been kids who've been sent at one point or another with a message to somebody else, right? Dad or mom or the adults say this. And you know whether you've been believed or not, right? How do you know whether they believe you? Because they obey. So if you ever get wrapped around the axle, you get confused, that's it. That's, it's that simple. You know whether you've believed if you've obeyed. And if you don't, then the wrath of God rests on you. Now at this point you're like, but... Does that mean I have to obey perfectly? Or I'm condemned? Doesn't that equal out to works righteousness, the whole thing, the problem that you were talking about before? Yeah, that would be works righteousness. No, that's not what we're talking about. It's really not that complicated. Because what are we supposed to believe? What we are supposed to believe is Jesus. That's what, that's what John was trying to shove his disciples, you know, turn them, turn their stiff necks to look at Jesus. Who Jesus actually is, is the Lamb of God, sacrificed so that our sins may be forgiven. And so that's why Believe, obey is not like, okay, now that you've believed, you have to live perfectly for the rest of your life or you can't get into heaven. Believe, obey is continuous. Believe, obey. What you have believed is not changing. Because God does not change. 
what you have believed is that Jesus Christ died so that our sins could be forgiven. Not just your sins that you did accidentally, not just your sins that you did before you believed or before you heard the good news, or be, or, and not just the sins that are, you know, weren't so terrible. All your sins, past, present, and future. Continue to believe that and then seek to obey. Because, honestly, how could we not obey? The choice is, come inside. Stop disobeying and come inside and receive my blessing. Or remain outside with the wrath of God on you. The moment we believe, we're obeying. Let's pray.